I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, it's Tuesday the 18th of February. I'm Andy Brassel, she's Jules Breach, and this is Jules and Andy on Football Ramble Daily. Today, we look at Manchester City as the dust settles after their Champions League ban and the shocks it sent throughout football. We also go European and look at one of the most upsetting racist incidents in a long time, which has shocked Portugal and something that's happening all over the continent, sadly. Also, we look at your correspondence, as always. You can always get in touch with us at Jules Breach, at Andy Brassel, Jules and Andy at footballrambledaily.com. Jules, what a weekend it's been there's been so much happening news wise when you bear in mind that there's been relatively little Premier League football I know I mean Friday night when the news broke about Manchester City it just it has just taken over the whole Mm. of the weekend's news and carried on into the beginning of this weekend it's been crazy yeah it does feel like a, a massive turning point for European football whichever way it goes not just Premier League football uh, of, of course um, Manchester City will appeal but you know what before we get any further we talked to Daniel G sports lawyer earlier just to clarify the facts we know what's happened with Manchester City they've been fined 30 million they've been banned from the Champions League for the next two seasons but 
but Daniel told us where they go from here. So uh, the process with with CAS going forward, which is the Court of Arbitration for Sport, is that uh, Man City have a, a specific period of time to lodge that appeal. I'm not sure whether they've done it as yet, um, because they will probably almost certainly be waiting for the written reasons um, by the UEFA body. But once that appeal is lodged after they've received those written reasons and can understand the rationale for the, the sanction, then what will happen is uh, CAS um, will um, uh, effectively uh, gain jurisdiction. They will then, um, each side will be able to appoint an arbitrator, which is the equivalent of a judge. And it's likely there will be three arbitrators sitting on this CAS matter. But I think primarily one of the most interesting elements initially will be how um, both parties decide to run with the timetable for what is going to happen next. Because on one side, um, there will be the issue about whether this case can actually conclude before the end of the season because of all the ramifications of whether fifth place gets the Champions League place or whether actually the, the ban will be suspended pending the outcome of the case. And that ultimately is the issue that a lot of people will have to, will have to consider. I think the important thing here to note probably is it's, it's not a foregone conclusion that um, fifth place team is going to play in the Champions League next season. I think there has to be a realistic possibility that Manchester United, Manchester City will be successful um, in suspending the ban pending the outcome of the matter, depending on whether tactically they think they should um, get an expedited procedure, i.e. get this all finished and concluded before the season finishes, or whether actually they believe that this is quite a complex case that needs a considerable amount of time being invested in the process and the arguments and the hearings so that actually this process might actually instead take the best part of six to 12 months in any event. The Swiss Federal Tribunal can look at particular um, constitutional matters over and above what the Court of Arbitration for Sport has deemed um, appropriate based on their judgment and their decision. Um, there has been um, precedent for that over the last period of time, but generally, generally, um, CAS is seen as the, the final arbiter, uh, the arbiter of those particular matters. It shouldn't be ruled out that there are other avenues as well. Manchester City could make a complaint to the European Commission, but again, things like that would probably be processes in parallel to what is going on at the moment rather than after or during things that are going on right now. Yeah, Daniel G, the sports lawyer, thank him for joining us. And that was that was very interesting and very succinctly set out there. I'm glad he's cleared it all up, Andy, because to be honest, I've read countless amounts of newspaper articles over the last few days. Yeah. And I'm still trying to get my head around everything and exactly mm. what happens next for Manchester City. So for Daniel to clear that all up makes it very concise in a small kind of soundbite for us all to kind of understand exactly what can happen from this point onwards. Yeah. I mean, what we can say is whatever happens next, um, it, it is going to have an absolutely seismic effect on English football and on European football. I mean, I know some people say in, in terms of the Champions League, well, in terms of competition, Manchester City haven't been making an enormous dent in it. So perhaps their absence from it is, is not going to make a huge difference. But bearing in mind the concentration of players they have, um, the, the fact that, you know, you look at players like Kevin De Bruyne uh, coming up 29 is not going to want to spend two years out of the Champions League if that does end up being the, the final punishment. But like a lot of people out there, I believe that Cass is likely, if, if you had to make an educated guess, to come to some sort of compromise to enable things to hold and 
everyone to, to to leave with a reasonable amount of face. If Manchester City were banned for a season, that would not completely torpedo their current project. I think they could probably sell that to their current players and to, to future signings. And from a UEFA perspective, you know, they're coming down hard on Manchester City would you know be preserved to a to, to to a certain extent because being out of the Champions League for a season would be an absolutely massive deal um but it, it will be interesting to see uh, what happens next well this is the thing is it's got so many football fans journalists people in the media asking so many questions you know everyone's wondering whether the greatest decade in Manchester City's modern history could be coming to an end. There's all these questions begging about Pep Guardiola's future at Manchester City. What happens to the players currently at Manchester City? What I think is more interesting is whether it affects players going to Manchester City from this point on. And we'll touch on all of that in, in just a minute. One of the things I just wanted to pick out from what we just heard from Daniel just a moment ago is he was saying that obviously an appeal from City could delay this process and the potential punishment past the end of this season. And I wanted to pick up on that because do you think it's actually in City's interest, Andy, to actually get this done quicker rather than later so that if a punishment were to happen they can get it done and out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. And it provides certainty for their current players. I think they're less likely to be freaked out about it. Um, I think it provides certainty for for transfer targets. If you know that there's a possibility of a club you're signing for being banned from the Champions League down the line, why would you want to commit to them long term? I, I think that's very, very difficult for, for for City. I think it's in everyone's best interest to to get it out of the way to know how the land lies. It's 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 probably in UEFA's best interest as well to to get it out of the way. So I I would imagine that we'll reach a conclusion reasonably quickly. But as Daniel said, if this extends beyond the end of this current season, I mean, you know football and money in football never lives in a bubble. And so all the time that Manchester City, just if we go back to you know Chelsea in 2003, 2004, when they first started spending a lot of money, and uh, I, I know even further back than that with Blackburn, you know, that, that money goes somewhere else and it enables clubs to, 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 to spend it on, on other stuff. So um, I, th- this definitely has an effect on other teams in um, the, the, the Premier League, because I think, say if you're, say if you're Manchester United, and say you finish fifth in the Premier League this season, but you don't know what it means, is it is it going to be good enough for Champions League or is it not? We're not talking about the beginning of the next season. We're talking about the end of this season because I think that when you when we talk about the sort of timescales that Daniel was evoking there, if we were to come to a definitive decision on Manchester City are they going to be in the Champions League or not is it going to be one season two season whatever Um, if we came to that decision everyone knew that decision by July I think given precedent that would seem reasonable wouldn't it that would but on the other hand if you're Manchester United and you don't know whether your fifth place is good enough for the Champions League or not which obviously then extends to the team's lower down as well whether they get exactly. Europa League football when, oh, in their case it's when do you come back and start training Yeah, you know you, you could have a team that's in in ninth place it could be I don't know Newcastle United or a Southampton or, or, or someone like that hey don't rule Brighton out 
<laughs> but that, that, you know, they could they could have three weeks chopped off their holiday to start again. But uh, for for the early rounds of the Europa League. But I think when it comes to that fifth place team, whether it be United, Wolves, whoever else it's going to be, it has huge implications because the sort of players you can sign if you're in the Champions League, even if you're Manchester United, and I do think this is more so for clubs like Wolves or, dare I say, Arsenal. Or even Sheffield United. Definitely Sheffield United. I think if if you don't know until July, I, I mean, you're chasing your tail it's in terms late, of the transfer yeah. market mm. by that point. And how would it affect someone like, I don't know, say Paul Pogba? for example, who Mino Raiola has brought up again yesterday, I think, that the idea of he won't be staying at Manchester United if they don't make the Champions League. So what decisions does Pogba make? It might be that they eventually make the Champions League and he says, well, I'm I'm not waiting until July or the back end of August or, or, or whenever to find out. I'm off to mm. Real Madrid or Juventus or, or wherever else. And if you lose Pogba... You know, you, you end up rebuilding a section of your team. You know, that's something that has a profound effect on you. Of course, they've been doing that without him for most of this season. But, you know, it's totally disingenuous to say he's not in keeping with United being ambitious and becoming a better team and making a dent in the biggest competitions that they're going to take part in. So all those things sort of factor in. that These are, these are all really big deals. You know, this isn't just about Manchester City, even though obviously their fans are feeling it more keenly than anyone else's at the moment. Yeah, there's clearly a knock-on effect on on the other teams in the Premier League, isn't there? But on Manchester City, what about the implications for the players there? Because obviously there's been a lot of speculation about how much Pep Guardiola needs to rebuild this squad in the summer, regardless of this news. Before this news broke, people were already talking about what Pep Guardiola needs to do in terms of defenders, in terms of bringing in someone to replace Vincent Company as a leader, as a captain, then the actual squad itself are ageing as well. And their best players are yes. 34 in midfield, you know, and then you've got players who are out of contract in 2021. Mm. These are all things that were already a topic of conversation prior to this news. And then you add in this potential ban for the Champions League, for the Europa League, for Manchester City for the next two years. And how does that kind of affect players who would maybe want to move to Manchester City? How much does that put players off? I think a a year you can get away with it. But when a year becomes two, it's something that's more difficult to deal with. And especially when that means, when there's the possible implication of you losing the core of the team. You know, that has an effect on on, on the confidence of of, of prospective players out there. There's no doubt about that. So, um, you know, Manchester City are attractive to players. They will remain attractive to players, but quite how attractive, it just depends. And that is why it's in their interests to get this sorted as soon as possible. So there's certainty, so there's planning, so they can move forward. A very interesting point that um, I saw uh, Jonathan Wilson make in the in the Guardian. But Jonathan Wilson, of course, also on Football Ramble Daily on on Saturdays with Greatest Games and and the, and the Blizzard, is he was saying that maybe this actually threatens the Champions League model because we've seen it before where, well, Jonathan was actually talking about what Manchester City do with their time if they were out for two years. Now we we know um, Premier League clubs are expansionists. They like to find new markets. They like to establish themselves in emerging markets. What were to happen if Manchester City decide to organise prestige friendlies over the world 
in places where they, they want to grow. So America, uh, the Middle East, the Far East, wherever else. And other clubs start looking and thinking, hang on, mm. they're making a truckload of money through that. And that outstrips perhaps money that you can make from the Champions League. I mean, Manchester City made £77 million from the Champions League last season, which is decent. But I think the problem has always been, and certainly in terms of the pressure coming from the likes of Bayern Munich, Juventus, teams that come from TV markets that don't earn as much as the Premier League, either domestically or globally, the difficulty has been that you know, they've been they've been looking at the situation thinking we don't get enough off the Champions League. That's where the noise for a European Super League has come from. And, you know, you can look at Chelsea, for example. When they've missed the Premier League, uh, when they've missed the um, Champions League a couple of years recently, you look at the figures from the Deloitte Money League and you know what? It's, it's not it's, it's not completely stuffed them. And they've done it through um, international marketing through prestige friendlies, through player trading, which Manchester City are very comparable to Chelsea in that sense. The idea that they, they get players, they develop them, maybe they don't make the first team, but you sell them. And you make, you know, Aaron Moy, for example, is, is a good example of that. Someone who, in his own words, signed for Manchester City, but knew he was never going to play for, yeah. for, 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 for Manchester City. So I think one of the concerns has to be you know, we, we, we've talked about potentially in terms of competition, maybe Manchester City, because they've made one quarter final under Pep Guardiola, perhaps in a sporting sense, they wouldn't be that missed. But what if Manchester City could use their time more productively, particularly on a commercial level, particularly with the way they look at business? Where does that leave the Champions League? Yeah, and on a commercial level and that kind of point that you make there, one of the articles I I was reading over the weekend was in The Guardian by Barney Renee. And one of the Mm. points he made, I'm just going to read you a a quote from it because I found it quite interesting. He said, City have still spent £340 million in net in transfer fees since Guardiola has been at the club, hundreds of millions before that as well. On one side of the equation, City have the third highest wage bill in world football at £300 million. City also have the fifth largest income, but you take out the self-fueling Etihad sponsorship deal and they're actually down in eighth in that list. He says an inability to grow their commercial income has been the sticking point for Manchester City. So going back to the financial implications, if City were to be banned for the two years and this actually went ahead... How dangerous would that be for Manchester City if they weren't able to do something else like Jonathan Wilson suggested? Well, it it would be tough. And I think you have to realise that Manchester City have made enormous strides in this sense in in, in the last four to five years. Um, I I remember back when I was um, living in France, for example, or, you know, when I was working in Portugal more. It's interesting the way that teams are, referred to in non-English context. Like, you know, you'll have newspapers where Arsenal are down in the table as Arsenal London, for example, <laughs> just to explain where they are. But because Manchester United were always Manchester, what did that make Manchester City? Nothing, basically. They've had to work very hard to be internationally recognised. And so, really, for Manchester City, the exclusion from the Champions League wouldn't be about commercial they 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 could 
they could swallow that loss, especially if it was for only one or two years. But in terms of global imprint, which is where they're looking at, and whatever you feel, um, whether you're for or against the Manchester City model, whatever you feel the motivations of the people running the club are, that is a massive deal to them, whichever way you look at it. Yeah, it is. And, and one of the things that I find interesting is obviously we've all heard about FFP for the last few years and it's yes. become a, a much bigger talked about subject, particularly with what happened at PSG. But I'm, mm. I'm a bit confused now because I don't understand what is the real difference between what happened at PSG and what's happening with Man City. Well, it's, it's a valid question, isn't it? Because if you go back a, a couple of years, you go back to 2017, the, the facts are that Paris Saint-Germain sa- signed Neymar and Kylian Mbappe in the same summer. Which still seems crazy. It's absolutely game-changing. Um, I think we, we have to look as well at the, 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 the... If you look at the reaction on the continent, those who've been delighted by what's happened to Manchester City, and, you know, there's no getting away from it. Some some European countries and some leading figures in European countries have had a positive reaction to to. to this, this ban for Manchester City, notably Javier Tebas, the president of La Liga, who has been very anti-Manchester City. He's been very anti-Paris Saint-Germain and has been on their case and complaining about them and their, as he puts it, financial doping, um, especially after the Neymar transfer, because it really stuck in his craw that one of the biggest stars in La Liga was taken away by what he saw as an inferior league. Um, as I said before, when you look at um, Germany, uh, there, there are people out there who, who think that it will be a, a, a positive thing for Germany with their different financial model. If you don't have petrobillions pouring into a club, that makes it easier for them. That makes it a, a level, more of a level playing field for um, what they would see as more equitably run um, Bundesliga clubs. Um, but I think the, the difference with, with PSG and what people have... But, well, there are two differences. Firstly, the devil's in the detail. Um, Kylian Mbappe was signed on loan in 2017. They didn't pay the 180 million for him till the next year. Now, you know, as far as I'm aware, the FFP investigators did say, look, we know what you're doing. We know what you're doing. But what, what the difference is between Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City, Manchester City, and we've seen it from not just the leaked De Spiegel e- emails, but from the way Manchester City have put out public statements about UEFA, they've always been very dismissive of UEFA. Now, Paris Saint-Germain have always defended their interests very strongly, but what FFP was always meant to be about, it was meant to be about making European football more sustainable, about putting a, a, a sort of um, a block on these absolutely massive losses. And what it's also been is it's not been habitually what Manchester City described it as in their quite pugnacious statement that followed the um, the punishment where they said um, UEFA for a, a what in, investigator, judge, and jury is is never been about you know Beak telling you off. It's been about we well, you know what this is not a sustainable situation. So let's work together to sort it out. And Paris Saint-Germain, like Milan before them, and bear in mind Milan, you know, the biggest clubs in the history of European football have been banned from the Europa League this year. Whether they would have accepted that if they'd have not missed out on the Champions League, because they only missed out on it by a point last season, is a, is a moot point. I think that's, that's an interesting what if. 
But Paris Saint-Germain ne- never stopped talking to UEFA. They never said, this is none of your business. We're going to run things how we like. You're wrong and we're right. They said, okay, how can we make this work? Right. How can we balance this? It was a consistent dialogue and they made an effort to to make cuts. And very controversially in some cases, the way they ended up, and we talked about Chelsea and Manchester City both making money from academy players, they rather controversially got rid of a lot of young players who people thought could have made them sustainable, could have made a difference in future. You know, they they, they sold the likes of uh, Christopher Nkunku, Timothy Weyer, who played on loan at Celtic, but for big money. And that was something that didn't sit well with a lot of people. But they made an effort to change things to an extent. And people look at Nasser El-Khalifi, the president of Paris Saint-Germain, and say, well, he's, he, he's sitting on the UEFA board, so clearly he's put a word in. He ended up sitting on the UEFA executive committee because they'd work so closely with them. Of course, it's about protecting the club. Of course, it's about self-interest. But what they've done is they've tried to say, look, if we keep this dialogue going, we're keeping ourselves in the game. And a lot of FFP punishment is about taking stuff voluntarily. So you're saying, right, okay, if I give a bit here, we'll get a bit more leeway here. And other big clubs have done it. Porto have done that. They've been in constant dialogue with, with UEFA as well and with, with with the people who deal with FFP to try and get themselves on the right page. Whereas Manchester City... Do you think they've made a mistake then by coming out and saying that they feel like the investigation is flawed and biased? Um, well, if, if that's what they feel, that's what they feel. It's not inconsistent with the way they've played it so far. And clearly they think they've still got a chance of getting a good result when they go to, to Cass. But I do think the fact that they've just sort of put put the hand up to, to UA for the whole time and said, you know what, we don't want to discuss this. I think that has led them to the point where they are now. Well, the other big question is what does all of this mean for Pep Guardiola? Because there was a feeling that and a rumour that Pep Guardiola might have been on his way out of Manchester City at the end of the season, even before this news came about. So now that we know of this news, we know of the potential punishment. What does it mean for Pep Guardiola? Does he want to stay? I mean, he's he's said that he does. He said that he's not planning to leave before his contract expires in 2021. Yes. He's also said that even if the club do go down to League Two, he's staying with them in League Two, which I don't think is going to happen. It, there's a tiny possibility. I look forward to him visiting <laughs> New Plough Lane in League One. But, you know, these are all things Pep Guardiola has said. He's standing yeah. by Manchester City no matter what happens in this situation. What do you really think is going to happen? I think um, if they do end up um, being banned um, maybe for a year, I think that helps them in their quest to keep Pep Guardiola. Because, oh, really? Yeah. I think if you look at, at other sort of not entirely dissimilar cases. If you look at Diego Simeone at Atletico when they had their player registration ban and then their move to the new stadium, I think in a, if you've got that sort of attachment to a club and, you know, we're not saying he grew up dreaming of coaching Manchester City or anything like that because clearly that's not the case. But they're a club who set the table for him way in advance. They gave him everything he wanted way in advance. They gave him the sporting management structure that he wanted. They made it clear that they would do everything to get him doing what he wanted the most, which is simply coach the team. They took a bit from his experiences, his positive experiences at Bayern. But even before that, they were getting ready 
to take Guardiola in what, three years before he, he came. I think that counts for a lot. And I think he won't want to seem like he's someone who's leaving a, a, a sinking ship. At some point, will he want to try something else? Yeah, maybe. Uh, I, th- I think that's a, a strong possibility. But I think he won't want to feel like he's leaving them in the lurch. I, I would not be surprised if this was to, in a Diego Simeone type way, of course they're very different coaches and very different personalities, he would feel, I owe the club, I need to give them something back. And of course it's a wholly different challenge for him if he has to start again outside of European football. If the accusations are true and they're upheld and the ban does go ahead for Manchester City, what do you think it means about City's achievements under Guardiola over the last few years? Because there's lots of people saying, well, it leaves a bad taste now. Those Mm. achievements can't have been fair. They can't have been real in a sense because they've breached these financial fair play rules. So how can they still hold their title, for example? What what do you make of p- comments like that? It'd be interesting to see how that turns out because I think you, you look at parallels with Italy, with uh, Juventus being stripped of titles. I mean, you know, we heard Jose Mourinho perhaps with tongue slightly in cheek <laughs> talking about his, uh, Manchester, his Manchester United being uh, maybe uh, uh, awarded a title after after the fact. I always think that seems really unsatisfactory. I mean, we've we've had that before in Italy with uh, uh, Juventus being uh, stripped of titles and the title being awarded to Inter. But you know that can't feel good. That that really can't feel good. Um, so, and it, it's it's not as if it's an open and shut case. I think the supporters would still consider those moments as as, as real moments. And yeah. you know why why shouldn't they really? And also, I, th- I think, you know, you look at Juventus and those strip titles, they still consider them to be real titles. Well, we haven't got to wait long until City are back in action again, because, of course, they play their Premier League match tomorrow night against West Ham, that one that was rearranged thanks to Storm Kira. This week, they're battling Storm Dennis, but I think it's going to be fine. So that should be all right. But in terms of European football, of course, they don't play in the Champions League until next week. Now, no. with this news coming out this weekend, just gone, do you think it's going to make City... Less or more motivated for the rest of this season's Champions League? I'm going to put it out there and say they're going to boo the anthem. Probably. <laughs> straight, straight away. Probably. <laughs> yeah, maybe a bit louder than than, than normal. Um, but I do uh, think as well, that, like, there are people out there saying, well, this 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 makes it, um, you know, even, even more big, uh, you know, because it was always really made big by the fact that the Premier League title is, is, is gone. Um, I think it gives them a, a certain bit of freedom. And I definitely would have seen them as as second favourites against Real Madrid, who've been pretty good over the, the last couple of months. And, you know, we, we talk again and again about how much things changed since the draw. You know, the, the form and fitness and all that can change so much in, in, in two months. I think this takes a, a little bit of pressure off them and, and they can go for it. And you know, playing Real Madrid will always be a huge thing for, for every one of those players for Pep Guardiola him, himself as well. So I wonder if it gives Manchester City a little bit of something extra going into this time. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Jules and Andy on Football Ramble Daily. We'll be getting to your correspondence very shortly because loads of you have been in touch as always, which is rather lovely. So thanks for that at Jules Breach, at Andy Brassel on Twitter, at Football Ramble. And of course, you can email us, Jules and Andy, at footballrambledaily.com. And you do, don't you? You, you do, do email, a- email us. us. It's great. Which is very nice. It's an old school form of communication, but clearly not for you guys. We, we keep talking about it as if it's carrier pigeon. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, not, it's not carrier <laughs> it's pigeon. It's really not. Um, and actually, the good thing with emails is that you're telling us some really great stories and we get to hear all of those. So keep sending them in. We get to know you. Mm. And also, you get to express yourself at uh, uh, length on um, uh, big issues and uh, we, we like to get our teeth stuck into those as, as you know and unfortunately one of those at the, at the weekend um, was racism again I was in a talk sport on uh, Sunday night um, doing um, my Sunday night show which is uh, Trans Europe Express and um, the game between uh, Vittoria Guimaraes and uh, Porto which is quite a big deal at the top of the Portuguese Liga had um, just finished at this point and then um the Musa Marega story and the reaction to it started coming out. Just to recap for anyone who might have missed that, um, Musa Marega is the the Franco-Malian striker, plays for Porto, been linked to move through the Premier League before, and um, he scored the winning goal in uh, Guimaraes, which uh, took Porto to within a point of Benfica at the top. And um, he'd had a kind of running battle with um, a section of the Guimaraes fans um, during the game. Uh, since the warm-up, as his coach, Sergio Conceição, who we'll come to in a bit, um, was saying afterwards. And as he was celebrating the winning goal, he was having um, seats ripped out and thrown at him. Just and he, he, he put one of those on his head as he was re- responded uh, to those fans. And then, uh, about 10 minutes later, he felt as if um, the abuse had reach fever pitch and um, he, he walked off the pitch or, or attempted to to walk off the pitch. Now, um, 
James Percival has uh, written to us about this as um, you know, it's, it's something that everyone in football has been talking about, and we don't often talk about Portuguese football, but it's a huge story um, all over the football world today. And um, James has, has written, um, I felt impassioned to email you today uh, following the horrific incident in uh, the Guimarães Porto match last night. Not to highlight the morons in the stands who triggered the reaction, but the jarring response from his teammates to stop him leaving the field. Otavio in particular, that's the short guy who's wearing the number 25 who a lot of people have um, uh, pointed out. And um, James is pretty unhappy about it and says the weak attempt by the club to put out a video uh, against racism after the game was too little too late. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts on what you think the club and league should do now as I fear Morega will be the one hit the hardest with a long ban and the mental scars. Keep voicing the big issues. Uh, thanks for that, James. Do you know uh, what? When I, when I first saw it, Andy, before you, because I know you've got yeah, a do. really good explanation on this, but when I initially saw this, I saw it on Twitter. So I was just yes. sat home on Sunday night and I saw a couple of videos and I was a bit confused because the the videos that were posted, the commentary wasn't in English. So I actually couldn't understand what they were saying. Yeah. Um, and there was no translation on the videos. And from the images themselves alone and from what the caption that was posted with the videos that I saw said, um, Morega has been racially abused and he's attempting to leave the pitch and not being allowed to. Now, obviously, that's the only thing I can see. Yes, That's the only thing I can understand from it. And from the visuals that I could see, it did look as though he was trying to leave the pitch and his teammates were trying to encourage him to stay on. So I was quite alarmed by this and I was yes. I was a bit confused. And it wasn't until I spoke to you that I actually understood a bit more about the situation. Well, I, th- I think you've, you've got to look at it in context and the overarching context of that, and I totally agree with James, it's very distressing and, and I agree with you, it's a very distressing and very ugly scene. Um, but I think the players aren't trained to react to this. I think you can see what's happening around the football world and you can absorb it to a degree. Although I think we can make a big mistake in thinking that footballers watch as much football as we do, because universally that tends not to be the case. Um, But I think seeing that situation somewhere remote and actually dealing with it on the pitch, I think is, is something totally different. The players are not trained to, to deal with this. Could they have handled it a bit better and could Otavio have, have, have handled it a bit better? Yeah, probably. He probably could have handled it a bit better. But I think what he was trying to do was probably coming from a, a good place. And I think especially when you're playing in an atmosphere like that, in a big game away like that, you're all locked in. You're all focused on on winning. And it, it, I suspect he's probably saying something along the lines of, you know what, they've... They've, they've taken something from you. Don't let them take the points as well. Let's finish this off. Everyone in this stadium, and Gimalich is known for its hot atmosphere, or normally it doesn't tip over the edge like this as, as it did with, with some of these uh, dreadful people in, in, in the stadium. Um, and, and so I understand where they're coming from. Um, to say that he wasn't backed by the coach, Sergio Concesao, is is not correct. Because the way that Concesao dealt with it, Madega started to come off the pitch and of course his his teammates are trying to calm him down see what he's thinking by this point the, the referee who's not done anything for the three step p- p- protocol uh Luis Coutinho and he could be in trouble for that uh, it, you know there's there's a lot of call in Portugal for for him to be disciplined and and punished for that um when Marega starts getting upset and starts trying to leave the field 
Consisau, the coach, he waves and he says, you know, I'm the coach. I need to sort this out. I need to speak to my player. And he waits. He stands a couple of steps onto the pitch, but he waits for Malaga to come off. And he takes him with, uh, he takes his head with both hands to say, right, forget all of this. Look at me. Look at me and tell me what's happened. And once he figures out what's happened, he makes the sub, which I think is fair enough. You've got to know what the player's feeling, what the player's thinking. And he's done what any leader would do there. And I think why I believe, two reasons why I believe that Concisau is coming from a, a good place and a sincere place, importantly. Firstly, when this starts, there's players, behind, uh, there's uh, fans behind him, and ov- obviously the the stands there are, are, are pretty close to the pitch, as, as you might have seen on on, on some of the footage. Now, um, Sergio Concisau used to be the manager of Vittorio Gimenez, and so he knows the club, he knows the people, and yet, rather than being polite, it he gets very very upset about that, and he says to the, the people behind him who are giving Morega abuse, "You're a fucking disgrace." And he says that more than more than once. Then he goes and speaks to the player, and then as um, once the match is over and it's all dealt with, he um, goes and speaks in the flashstone. Now the the, the flashstone is the bit, as, as you know, obviously Jules, because you've worked in it on a number of occasions, but people listening might not. It's the bit where the players come off, uh, the players and the coaches come off and they speak immediately. So they're very interesting sort of interviews because you don't get a time to prepare, gather your thoughts, catch your breath in some occasions. And that's what the broadcasters want. They want a reaction that's not learned, that's not studied. So Sergio Concisau hasn't been coached. He hasn't been given any notes by the press officer, any, anything like that. And he comes out and speaks, um, in a very controlled way, but a very honest, sincere way. And he goes, I, I know this club, but this is just totally um, unacceptable. We're disgusted by this. Um, we're all one family. And, um, you know, we're, we are all Marega, he said. And what, what has happened today is, is unacceptable. And he said, I can't talk about the game. I just can't talk about the game because it's not important in this context. And of course, people will look at what came out on um, social media afterwards and they'll think it's a coordinated response from the players. A positive response, but maybe a coordinated response. And I understand that. That's not what came from Concisau. Mm. He's someone who spoke like a head coach should, like a leader should. I think everyone followed him. Now, of course, the most important person in this is Manega. And you have to listen to what he says and what he feels. Um, and maybe an incident like that, this, and God willing, there aren't too many more, will be dealt with differently in the future. I think, quite honestly, Porto, and especially Sergio Concisau, is a great coach and a good man, dealt with this in the best possible way. There's no perfect way to deal with this because it's totally unprecedented event in Portugal. I think you look at the way that people have reacted to this. The, the response has, has been quite uniform. It's been on the front page of all the newspapers, not just the three, four sports newspapers that they have, but the big newspapers. This is a huge story where the only story normally is Porto versus Benfica. One of the first tweets that came out, um, Porto and Benfica never want to be seen as associated to each other. They detest each other. Benfica came out and said, this is unacceptable. We've got to say no to racism, which 
of course, might seem like a normal thing, but for there to be a connection between Benfica and Porto over everything, that is massive news. And the fact is, the way that everyone has come out on this, so the media, the head of the FA in Portugal, the FPF, Fernando Gomes, he came out and, and said that, look, basically, we've got to throw the book at, at, at Guimarães and these supporters within, what, an hour of it finishing? You've had the league come out and say, right, we're having a, a full investigation and there's there's going to be things that are, are, are definitely going to happen. There's been such a, a strong reaction to it because people have been so deeply mm. and so profoundly shocked by it. And they're not oblivious Portugal when when it's it's normally Cristiano Ronaldo and and uh, Jose Mourinho they're extremely conscious as a small country of under 10 million people of how they're perceived in the rest of the world and this is really noticeable the fact that they know this is being talked about all over the world they're not oblivious to it at all unfortunately though we I feel like we have to talk about this time and time again yeah. and this season more than any other football season that I've worked in and that We've had to deal with these stories in the media. This seems like it's happening more and more often. You've just made the point there, Andy, that this is very rare in Portugal, yet mm. now we're seeing it happen over there. And I think that you explain the way that it's been dealt with over there um, perfectly, succinctly, because that's exactly how the situation unfolded. The coach acted in the best way possible in the situation. I think the referee should have done more. And we just it, didn't follow the protocol. He didn't follow the protocol. And surely that must be something that all referees must know about. They must know that if there is racist abuse in a stadium during a live football match, there is a certain protocol they have to follow. We've talked before on Jules and Andy about how this shouldn't be the responsibility of the players. No. It shouldn't be. When it is up, when they do decide to take matters into their own hands, then I then I absolutely applaud them because they mm. absolutely don't have to do that and they shouldn't feel obliged to do that. However, when they do that, it is commendable. But this really should be down to the authorities to be doing more. And in this case, that is the referee on the pitch. He should have done more in this situation. And it's just a shame that more action wasn't taken because if it was, I don't think we would have seen the images that we've all seen on Twitter or on telly, wherever wherever you guys have seen these images of Morega trying to walk off the pitch. Where I saw them, it looked as though his teammates were telling him not to leave the pitch and was encouraging mm. to stay on. And unfortunately, they're the images we're seeing. And I don't think we would have seen those if the referee had taken the, the, the protocol the way it should have done. Exactly. And I think there's, there's what, 10 minutes between the point where he's booked for apparently over-celebrating the, the goal and, you know, I, I guess inciting the crowd is, 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 is the way that the, mm. um, the referee would have seen it. And so, and, and the bit where he actually decides enough's enough and, and, and goes off. So what's going on in his, his, in his head between those times? It's, it's a lot to process and yeah. it's a, a lot to put up with. Unfortunately, though, it wasn't the only racist incident in football over the weekend either. There was also the incident um, with Max Lowe at Derby County. Now, if, if you missed this story... Um, Basically, what happened was there is an ex-Derby County midfielder, Craig Ramage, who um, worked as a pundit for BBC Radio Derby. And he was live on a show called Sports Scene after Derby's championship game at the weekend. And I'm just going to read out the quote of exactly what he said on the radio show. He said... When I look at certain players, their body language, their stance, the way they act, you just feel... Hold on a minute. 
he needs pulling down a peg or two. I'd probably say that about all the young black lads. I mean, this is just incredible that anyone would even think that, let alone say it. it. And then to broadcast it. He's a professional pundit who works on the radio. This is, I I was absolutely shocked when I heard that quote. And I, I just couldn't believe that this was actually happening. And this happened live. What makes it even worse, this was then put onto a podcast. So it was still available to listen to, which is obviously how Max Lowe was then notified about it. Mm. Now, we've just spoken about the fact that players shouldn't feel have to be responsible to act on any situations like this, which they're faced with. In this instance, Max Lowe did, and he actually um, tweeted and posted on his Instagram page about this. And I thought that the words he used were just perfect. This is what he had to say. He said, racial ignorance, stereotyping and intolerance negatively affects the image of impressionable young footballers and creates an unnecessary divide in society. I'm disappointed that a public service broadcaster did not step in to ask the analyst to explain his reasoning or to distance themselves from these archaic thoughts. And that's exactly what they are. They are archaic thoughts. They, they are. I remember Ron Nodes when he was uh, the, the, the chairman and owner of Crystal Palace saying something similar about Crystal Palace's black players. But this was in 1990. And people thought it was repellent then, quite rightly. But uh, it's, it's just jarring. I, th- I think if, if you were to make a defence of the presenter, and certainly it should never have come out as a, as a, as a podcast. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where you think, did that really happen? Did you actually say yeah, that? Yeah, did that really happen? Yeah, yeah. And that's the only the only thing I can think of in the, terms it's, of the It's presenter. only even slight defence, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, but for Craig Ramage, um, I mean, ramifications have been taken now. Mm. Um, he has been dismissed from his duties mm. at BBC Radio Derby. So that's at least they've taken action in yeah. that sense. And I just think that it's such a, it's so unfair for a young player like Max Lowe, who has just gone out there that day and done his job. Hmm. And yet he then hears of all these comments that are being made. And, and especially because of the stereotyping, hmm. that's that's one of the worst parts about it, I think. And especially from an ex-player who used to play for the same club that Max Lowe plays for. Yeah, I think when you look at the community of local radio as well, which, um, you know, lo- local radio, local media generally is, is under pressure at the moment. And um, when you think of how good it is at creating community, I think that's a particularly distressing element of it. We, we saw something else in uh, Germany that was talked about this weekend. It was it was from the third tier in Germany, and it involved uh, Leroy Quadwo of, um, of Würzburger Kickers, and they were playing an, an away game at uh, Preston Münster in, in the third tier, and he was racially abused in the stand. Quite upset by it, as you can imagine. But the other spectators in the crowd, and uh, you know, this is a third tier match, I think there were about five and a half thousand people there. Other spectators from the home team, that's not the side that Leroy Quadro was playing for, he's an away player. Mm. Uh, they pointed him out to the stewards and he was taken away and he's going to be prosecuted. And wow. then the stadium afterwards chanted Nazis out. Now, as you say, with these issues, Yes, we need leadership from the authorities. It shouldn't be down to the the players. You know, there needs to be um, more of a more, more direction on how this is is dealt with. Certainly, as it's is coming up more and more. But I have to say, 
and we saw Leroy Quadwell on um, Das Aktuelle Sports Studio, which is like the German equivalent of the match at the day that they have on ZDF on a on a Saturday night. He was invited on there to to talk about it because they thought it was such an important issue. But to see the fans react in that way was a, a really a really heartening thing. And you know, you can say it's the authorities' responsibility, and it is, but it's our sport. It's our sport, and it's very important for us not to just do nothing. As fans, we have that duty. Yeah, absolutely. If you see something or you hear something, you absolutely have to report it. Absolutely. It's it's, it's absolutely huge. And this is a heartening thing, just like when you had, um, you know, and we keep bringing up so many of these incidents. It's it's horrible. But when you had Iñaki Williams of Athletic Bilbao um, receiving racist abuse, earlier in in the in the season when he played his next match away at Tenerife in the the, the Copa del Rey I think we might have mentioned this on Jules and Andy already this season in the ninth minute which is the number of his shirt they all they all applauded him and um chanted no to racism and I think there's, there's definitely been been a tipping point for a lot of and the majority of normal, reasonable fans. And and fans are starting to realise. I mean, Inyaki Williams was very touched by that gesture. He wasn't expecting it at all. But I, I think this is where we are, that fans, just as in any time of crisis, have to step to the front and say, you know what? We know what's best for our sport. Mm. I think this is another of those occasions. Yeah, it is. And, and already from those three incidents that we've talked about from the weekend, they're all different in their own way and they've all been dealt with very differently. There was one final one that I just wanted to mention and it was from uh, non-league Atherston Town. I hope I've pronounced that right. Um, they're a club that play in the Midlands. Um, there were racist comments that were observed and heard by members of the Atherston supporters at the weekend when they were playing against Stafford Town and it was actually not the first time that their the supporters have been heard as being racist. It was actually the second time in the space of just a week. And the manager and assistant had enough and decided they didn't want to be associated with the club anymore. So they've decided to resign, which I think is another huge step. It's another different approach that we're seeing and, and and just from these these few stories alone that we've touched on you can see the different approaches that people are taking and after the game the chairman of Atherston Town along with the management and secretary they they did an investigation into the the racist abuse that was heard from the fans they identified the responsible group of fans who were their own supporters who were being racist and they've now all got to face lifetime bans as a result of the investigation and that is definitely something that should be put in place. As I mentioned though, for the manager and the assistant manager to resign from their jobs as managers of that football club is something that I've not heard before and that is massive news. And again, Scott Rickards, who is the manager, I just want to read you a quote of what he said because I just think that the way they've handled this situation is exemplary. Um, he said, this is not something I could turn a blind eye to. As a manager, a coach, a person, this behaviour is not acceptable. Racism is not something anyone should be faced with. We don't manage games to be abused racially, verbally or physically. I have black players who play for my team. So where do I stand morally and ethically if I say, let's just deal with it and move on? I felt that I owed it to everyone in my circle of friends and anyone I've come across in the game to say, no, I won't accept this. And that's why him and his assistant decided to resign. So they've chosen to step away from this on a moral level and put that ahead of winning any football match of what 
that club means to its fans in terms of moving forward in in the FA Vars and the other competitions that they're in and actually saying, do you know what? What's more important in this situation is to actually stand up for the players and the people who actually mean something in football. Yeah, a lot to get through this week. Some very important issues that we we wanted to spend some time on and, and, and properly cover. Uh, so, uh, just a, a quick dip into the, the the mailbag, as we say, at Jules Breach, at Andy Brassel, uh, Jules and Andy at FootballRambleDaily.com. We've got one from uh, Carlos that says, "A new listener here, following from the pod about personal teams and um, the ramble meets with Joe Palmer." Um, you can still listen to that, of course, on on the, on the Football Ramble feed. I live a stone's throw away from Plough Lane, but grew up a, a Chelsea fan for the reasons that Joe Palmer mentioned. Chelsea coaches in my school, trips to the stadium for school events to meet legends. How do AFC Wimbledon attract and forge emotional and generational bonds with fans with less resources and poorer football in the social media age? Do you think they'll fill up the stadium come 2021? Well, the first thing we can say how did is, they attract you Andy <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know what that's that's a, that's a good question and the first thing we've got to say is it looks like the stadium will actually be there the, 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 the bond issue that we've talked about um, has reached and breached its target uh, 5.12 million has been raised wow at, um, at, at, at the time of uh, recording which is an astonishing Incredible. effort the uh, the 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 bond, plowlanebond.com it is, um, was extended over the over the, the weekend and there's now been opportunity to, for um, uh, overseas fans to, to, to invest. Um, and it's, it's, it's been an incredible experience to, to be involved with. Um, but I think that's right, what Carlos says about personal contact with a club. It makes an enormous difference. What I loved about going to Wimbledon at the original Plowlane, there's no us and them. Like football has seemed quite remote nowadays. And, you know, I think that's, partly a reflection of the, the sort of size of business it is. But when Wimbledon were in ramshackle old plough lane, <laughs> the players would go in the bar afterwards and you'd go in the bar afterwards. And there was no us and them. And so you got to meet them and hang out with them. That's how I know football from watching non-league down in Sussex. Yeah. yeah. Just go along. You can meet all the players, meet the managers and just enjoy that kind of experience, that intimate feeling. Yeah, that's 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 right. Well, I, I think Wimbledon are making those connections to go back to Carlos's email because they've been working with local schools and, and what have you for a, for a very long time, laying the ground for that, move back to Plough Lane and they've always wanted to re- retain that link with the area. Um, so that's been important to them. And I do think that they'll fill up the stadium when they get there. Of course, it's not going to be the full 20,000 when it opens. It'll be about 9,500. Um, but I think, you know, you can look at Wimbledon's crowds when they were last at Plough Lane and light to that. Football's almost a different sport then in mm. 1991. Um, I think it's something that's seen as uh, a lot more safe and family orientated now. And I think that will be a, a, a big draw for Wimbledon. It'll be a much better facility than the original Plough Lane, God rest it. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I've, I, I feel pretty optimistic for, for Wimbledon going forward. And, you know, we always talk about, you know, the, the, the level of football. And of course, that, that has an issue. But I think when you're going to see your club, it's about your club mm. in the community. It's, it's not about, you know, going to see Messi and Ronaldo every week or watching them on television. Actually being there, actually being part of it is something totally different. And to me, I think you especially see this with small children, you can't compare going to the game and having that contact 
with watching it on TV. It's two different things. Yeah, oh, I'm excited for you, Andy. Exciting times to come. And thanks for your email, Carlos. Um, speaking of going to see players in real life, I'm going to be watching Salah and Mane. Yep, Champions League winners. I am going back to the scene where Liverpool lifted the Champions League trophy in the summer. It's my first time going back to Atletico. That's um, very exciting. I'm really I, looking forward I to think that. So, the main difference between us, Jules, has just struck me. What? I would have, If I was saying that, I would have said, oh, I'm off to see... Uh, Coke and uh, Yano Black tonight. <laughs> no, I am actually buzzing about this. I think it should be a pretty good game tonight. I'm excited for it. Yeah, it should be. And you're heading to Dortmund, I hear. Yes, I am. I'm going to be. What a game that's going to be too. Oh, it's going to be exciting, especially with uh, PSG losing, uh, just losing, drawing four all at Amiens on the weekend, three nil down, four three up, and conceded a stoppage time equaliser. Oh, uh, I mean, and Dortmund winning four nil. So there's there's going to be goals in this. There's absolutely no doubt about it. It's going to be so cold. So it's good that the football's going to be white hot, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think this whole stage now of the Champions League knockouts is just going to be amazing. So. Yeah. So can't wait to get it started. Well, enjoy the Champions League, Andy. I'll see you next week. Thanks to you guys for listening and for getting in touch as always. And our thanks once again to Daniel G, the sports lawyer and author of Done Deal for all of his help with today's show as well. There's a link to his book in the show synopsis if you want to read more. See you next week. This was a Stakhanov production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.